You're listening to Making a Living Show. I'm Roby Levy. Hey, my name is Jonathan Bird, and I make music and photography for a living. The son of a piano teacher and a preacher, Jonathan Bird has been playing guitar his whole life. After a stint in the Navy, he played in different rock bands, but was always searching for music that truly spoke to him. One day, he was invited by friends to an old-time fiddler's convention in Virginia, and it was there that he finally found what he'd been looking for. Here's my chat with Jonathan Bird. Who are you, and what do you make for a living? My name is Jonathan Bird. I'm, I'm sort of, quote, known as a songwriter and an entertainer. That's what I've been doing for about 20 years. Uh, but about two or three years ago, I picked up a camera because I wanted to live stream my band. And I realized that that was possible, and it was possible to do kind of a good job of it if I figured out what I was doing. But I didn't know anything about a camera. So I bought a nice, kind of inexpensive mirrorless camera for for doing video stuff, really. But I just started snapping pictures and got fascinated with that process um, and with imagery and and also being in an image-driven business uh, for so long and now more image driven than ever now that we, the, the internet is our main, is kind of our main street where we sell our, our wares as musicians or artists. Um, and then of course I bought a more expensive camera, (laughs) (laughs) more lenses and uh, lights and all the, all those things. Yeah. Yeah, I know that rabbit hole. I've done the same thing and it's, uh, except my pictures aren't getting better. They're just being taken by more expensive cameras. That's about it. (laughs) I got, I got some work to do. I just read a great article about the, the snapshot and just kind of the, the great thing about snapshots. You look through your old family photos and how they, they carry those memories. And, you know, there's a lot of editing these days. There's a lot of, there's a lot of making very pretty pictures for Instagram. Uh, but there is something to be said for the snapshot of your kid's birthday party when they, you know, their eighth birthday party, the weird clown that you hired or whatever, you know, those, <laughs> yeah. those memories you can laugh about and having a little photo album of those. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've even found that, um, I've been leaving the camera at home and I've just been walking around with my phone, uh, especially yeah. now the new, with the new iPhones, they've got the three lenses in them. So I get like a 50 and a 24 and, uh, you know, something I think on a, a 100 mil and, you know, I mean, that's, that's what you, you know, what do they say? The best camera you've got is the one that's with you. Isn't that the, the old saying? Right. Yeah. So I'm definitely taking those simple photos that are just sort of happening around and every once in a while I get a decent one, but for the most part. A lot of it goes into the trash because it's it's just you know shots of my feet and whatnot. But um, <laughs> let me take this all the way back. Let, let's talk about music for a second because that's that, okay, that's great. as you were saying. You spoke. Uh, you told me that you started off in music about twenty years ago. Yeah. So I always played music. People ask me, "Oh, when did you start playing guitar?" Like, I don't know. I started playing guitar. I have no idea. Um, and I don't even remember when I started writing. I remember writing things when I was in school, or writing you know bad poetry or writing lyrics to something because I had a melody that I was playing on the piano and I just wanted something to sing with it and the words didn't maybe make as much sense or they were vapid or whatever but I was always messing around with things I just didn't know how to approach it as a business I didn't know what that was all about Um, and I didn't really grow up in a family of of business people so I didn't get that kind of home education in what business was either I joined the Navy when I left high school I just wanted a way to get away from home um, and have some adventures and I did that and then I came back and worked at a grocery store and I delivered pizzas and all this, the whole time I had bands and I was playing music this whole time. And finally, one day I was like, what am I doing? I just, this is all I want to do is play music. It's, it's all I really do. I mean, when I'm delivering pizzas, I'm just trying to make enough money so I can, you know, change my strings. So I can play this gig. That's all I'm doing. So why don't I figure out how to make money at this? 
And really the key for me was being able to write songs. And I had dabbled in songwriting because I had bands and they had music and we needed songs. And so I made up some words to go with the stuff that we were writing. Um, but I, I discovered acoustic music at about the same time, this old time music, this sort of pre-bluegrass string band music where anybody could be a part of it. Like the four-year-old was just learning how to play the mandolin and the grandpa with the, the wax paper and the comb or whatever. Like whoever was there was in the band. And there were these old anonymous songs that were handed down for who knows, a couple hundred years. And I started thinking that maybe I could write a song that people wouldn't know that I'd written. <laughs> I, I could sing it in a circle and people would say, where'd you learn that song? Um, and so I took that on as a challenge and I started writing songs that some of them worked for that. Some of them did get under the radar in that way. Some of them didn't. Some of them really surprised me. Um, and they were a little weird and they were kind of coming out of my rock and roll past a little bit. But, but, they, but I was doing something different with the lyrics because I was imitating these old story songs. I, I had a chronology and I had a setting and I, had, I was working with these things that storytellers work with that I hadn't really done before. I was kind of like, before I was kind of Robert planting it, you know, just like improvising. No, yeah, no, yeah, whatever. Like just <laughs> throwing some sounds out there. But now I was getting more serious about telling a story. And then people started to pay attention to my songs. So I was able to take my guitar and go to, you know, call the Chamber of Commerce in Hickory, North Carolina and say, you know, I could play the Pumpkin Festival in July or whatever. It would, Pumpkin Festival would be July, it'd be in October or whatever. And, you know, they put me in the gazebo. They paid me 300 bucks and put me in the gazebo and everybody would come to look at the pumpkin. Nobody knew I was there, but I got my check and I went home. And so my first summer making music, making money, making music um, was doing that. And I was able to quit my job. Uh, whatever my job was at the time, I was able to quit my job and build a very rudimentary website. And this is 1999 we're talking about. Nobody's buying MP3s. There's no Apple Music. There's none of that exists. But I was building a rudimentary website and I, was, I had to get an email account. And I just started building my business that way and got really intense and serious about it and, and got off the ground that way. For, and for probably the next 10 years, I would make albums. I would have like players on my albums, but mostly I would tour solo. Um, and that's Was that a cost thing? I mean, is that just cost and logistics being easier? Just, just finances. Yeah, it's just the economy of touring. Uh, you know, it's, it's not great. Um, and when you have even three people and then, so you got three guys and you're carrying all the gear and then somebody's got to talk to the sound man. You really need a tech to go with you and then you got to rent a van and, so this is just you and an acoustic guitar, and you'd yeah, show I had up and a guitar. I'd, I'd rent a sedan and and drive to Texas and play for two weeks and and drive home, and the economy of of that really worked well for me. I'd come home with I don't know what I'd come home with five grand for two weeks, and I'd spend three thousand of it on the bills that I racked up while I did that. You know, but right. <laughs> that was making it work. I was making you know, I bought a house and I had a family and we had a kid and um, I made it work. Was there a a, a concern? I mean a family and a kid with a, a, a musician that, you know, isn't a teenage pop icon, you know, one of uh, an overnight success. Like you were about 30, I think, when you really started getting into making your living through music successfully. And I was 40 when I had a child. I call it the drop and give me 50 of life. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. I'm going but through that right that. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a difficult decision to lay in heavily into music 
at that point with those types of responsibilities? I think a lot of people would probably go the other direction. What what made you steer into it? Uh, I just didn't like the jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't like working for other people. I didn't like showing up at, at you know four thirty in the morning to fill the bulk bins. What you know, I, I just it wasn't what my mind was on. My mind was never there. Right. I was there. My mind was never there. My mind was always on music. It was always on um, creating a lyric. It was always on something creative that I wanted to do. And I just realized I was never going to be happy. I was always going to have regrets. I was going to be resentful. I was going to walk around with resentments if I didn't try to do something about this. Um, and so I did. I got serious about it. I, I, I ran into a fantastic book, by the way. A lot of people have heard this. Um, it's almost a cliche at this point, but it bears mentioning again because everybody who discovers this book and it changes their life, it's so worth saying, The Artist's Way. The book is called The Artist's Way, and it's a workbook. So you, it, it gives you tasks to do as you read it, and it teaches you how to run your own business, how to be an artist without feeling like you are not contributing to society you are contributing to society and these are the ways that you're doing it and it really helps you through all that stuff the psychological stuff the family stuff the practical day-to-day -day, what's my next task kind of stuff and it really changed my life and gave me a pathway um, into making a living as a musician is it still something that you refer back to and i mean are you applying that now as you're you're sort of awakened to photography in the last few years and and you're clearly interested in continuing to pursue photography pretty seriously. Oh, yeah. Is, is that still something from that book? Are, are you still following some similar guidelines? Yeah, well, I feel like I kind of wrote that book on my soul. Like morning pages is one of the things, right? Three pages every morning. And writing every morning, getting up and, and, and being in that kind of sleepy state and just banging out a few pages, you, you kind of you dig down into your own brain a little bit and you get at your purpose and you surprise yourself with the things that you think that just they just go by in a second unless you write them down. And when you write them down, there's some seriousness about that. There's some seriousness about spending the money and the time on the ink, on the paper to do that, that makes you go, oh, wow, I, I, I guess I do think that way. Maybe I should do something about that. I guess I am angry at my dad. <laughs> I guess I should do something about that. You know, it's there on the page staring at you. It's a very powerful practice. I just read one of your Instagram posts, and it was all about how you realized at a certain point that though you played music for many, many years, you were unfocused and you hadn't really found the success necessarily that you were looking for, both for yourself and, and outwardly. But one day you woke up and effectively realized that you were not just a musician, you were a writer. And that in actuality, it was writing that you were meant to do. It was writing that affected people. And, and there's, there's really, the reason to be an artist for me is to affect people. It's like, I, I, want, I want to make somebody, they're driving home from work and they hear my song on the road, on the, on the radio, and they cry. They have to pull the car over and, and call one of their friends. I mean, that's what you want as an artist. You want to stop people in their tracks and make them feel something. And when I started writing and when I got serious about writing, I started making people feel things. And that was so gratifying. And people would come to, the, come to talk to me after the show and they would be crying or they would tell me this great story about this vacation they had when they were 17 and they, you know, they drove 
they took the car and they weren't supposed to, and they drove three states. They went in and they were just telling these great stories. And in, later on into my career, people would say, hey, I got a tattoo of this lyric that you have in your song. And I mean, that kind of, you, you, you are, um, you're affecting people's lives and people sort of hand you their soul uh, sometimes. And that is an amazing thing. It's a, it's a vulnerable, it's a vulnerability, right? When somebody comes to you and tells you that kind of thing, they're making themselves vulnerable to you. And that is very powerful. I can actually tell you, last night, I put my kid to bed. And it's kind of a trying thing these days because she's crying a lot before going to bed. And I put on headphones and I went to your Bandcamp page and I just randomly hit a song. And all of a sudden I was listening to I Wish I Was In Love, mm-hmm. which is a song that you guys didn't even put out. You, 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 you had recorded it. It's my understanding. There was like 16 tracks. You put out 10 and these were the six. I found the six that were not put out. And then you put them out, I guess, more recently. And That's right. I listened to that song and it stopped me in my tracks. And I, I've never had a more emotional loading of the dishwasher than, than listening to that track. And my, my wife came down a little bit later and, and I, without even talking, I just put the headphones on her. I said, you got to listen to this. Just listen to this. And you know, I mean, and, and it is, it's, it's an incredible moment when you hear a song that just speaks to you. I, I don't know why I was, I, why I was so affected, but it just hit me in all the right I'm getting misty here in all the right ways. And, uh, and I thought it was just, it, it, it just made me want to keep listening, not just to that song. I just let her rip and listen to song after song after song. And that's the thing you've got, your songs run the gamut of, of, of emotion. I mean, you've got happy, fun party songs all the way to, you know, loss right. and, and ballad songs. I, I'm kind of curious, you, you, you're a pretty prolific writer of music and words. Do you ever run into a lack of ideas? You ever hit a block and go? Oh, I've got nothing. I've got nothing left to say. I've got nothing else. I, I only run stuff. into a lack of time. Really, there's no lack of ideas. Where are the ideas coming from? Well, I mean, if if you if you feel like you've run out of your own ideas, you just steal some. There's there's <laughs> like they're out there. I mean, for example, so I wish I was in love was and started as an exercise in what I call the power of the opposite. And so there's there's a there's a um, there's a Gillian Welsh song called um, I think it's April the fourteenth Ruination Day I think it's part one where she says um, it was a five band bill three dollar show I saw the van out front from Idaho it was a girl passed out in the back seat trash and there was no way they'd make even half a tank of gas they looked sick and stoned and strangely dressed and no one showed from the local press and I watched them walk through the bottom land and I wish I played in a rock and roll band. That last line is so heavy, <laughs> so heavy. And it's so beautiful. And it just hits you with, yes, despite everything you want to be cool like them, despite how hard it is to be in love with someone. If you're not, you want it. You want that person in your life. And so that, you know, it's, it's like stealing an idea. That's what I mean. It's like, there's so many ideas out there. And um, as a photographer now, I'm studying painters because they, they get to create their perfect composition that they want. And thinking about composition in that way and what I get to create and the tools that I have to work with now as a photographer is inspiring me to tell stories and to create interesting compositions and to use the power of opposite in light and in contrast and in mood within a visual framework. Is it liberating to try and tell stories without 
the tools that you've had, which is basically words and sound, and instead go purely visual with the photography? It is. You know what's most liberating about it, actually, is that I don't really have to make money at it right now. I, I am making money at it right now. I'm figuring out how to make money at it right now. And that is, that's great. That's very rewarding. But I'm still making money playing music. And I've been kind of smart about putting some money away. So it's liberating that I can create what I want to create. And, and, and what I find is that that's what people are really most interested in. It's like the, the more I find my own voice as a photographer, the more people want to see what I'm doing. What are you hoping to achieve with the photography? Is there sort of a, a pinnacle or an end game that you're trying to, to reach? So I do write story songs, right? And, and so the tendency is, I think, for people to think that that's what I set out to create. Like, obviously, you had this story in mind. And so you had to, you know, cut it down to four minutes and make it rhyme <laughs> um, and find a key for it and those kind of things. But really, I don't write that way at all. I often start with a piece of music a little guitar riff, a melody, maybe one line that evokes some kind of emotion. And then I stumble around in the desert looking for the rest of it. Um, but I'm a, I'm a really aggressive stumbler. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I tend to find things. So it's kind of the same way with photography right now. I think I've just recently started to figure out some conceptual things that I want to do. I'm going to start with the idea and work on that and build up to that. But a lot of it has just been like, how do I get this light the way I want it? Like I see Lindsay Adler, this incredible photographer working with color in Vogue magazine. And like, there's no, there's no skin tone on this model at all. There's no color on this model that is her natural skin tone. Like, how is she doing that? And so then I just get some lights and some gels and I explore myself until I find my own way of doing that. And most of my exploration in photography has been that kind of thing up to this point. Uh, and now I feel like I can take a concept and I have those techniques well enough that I can tell that story. Where are you learning photography? Like, I mean, it sounds to me like you taught yourself music. Now you're teaching yourself photography. Are you, are you yeah, a YouTube, YouTube learner like I am? YouTube is unbelievable. And and actually, there are several photographers who are making a really good living. Peter McKinnon is in Toronto. Yeah. He's got a fantastic YouTube channel. And like, I don't know, three, four days or something, he comes out with this amazing video. Some of, Every now and then, I feel like he's trying to sell me something. You know, sometimes it, it gets on. And I understand. He's got like millions of subscribers. I understand. He's paying the bills. Um, but often, it's like, oh, that's a cool trick. He did. He did the one with that guy where they they would take pictures of themselves jumping in the air or sort of laying across something that was kind of small that they could take out of the picture later to make it look like they're flying or floating. I was like, I'm going to go do that right now. You know, just, just some inspiration. Um, but also equipment reviews. There's lots of equipment reviews on YouTube. Um, and so I just kind of dove into it that way. There are some photographers around here, but I don't live in New York. I don't live in Toronto. I don't live where like, like a lot of really busy professional commercial photographers are working. So I haven't had that kind of link to get together with somebody to do that. And I've just kind of had to buy some stuff and try some stuff. That's the fun. Find what I want. Well, I found a really unique style, um, especially with flowers. So I've been what I I've been doing what I call botanical portraiture. And I've I've got a light modifier. It's called a beauty dish or sometimes called a paramount light because you see these old black and white pictures of like um 
uh, Audrey Hepburn. And they are lit a very certain way. In fact, they were lit that way by contract. They had to be photographed that way for their promo shots. And it's about a two foot wide metal dish that is reflecting a light. And it creates this big, soft light that's very flattering. And so it's a very popular light for portraits. People use it all the time for portraiture. Well, I found that I could actually, if I had a speed light in a beauty dish, I could actually hold it in one hand. And it's not super easy, but I can do it. It's like, you know, two and a half pounds or something. And I can hold my camera in the other hand. And I, I don't have the ability to focus because my other hand is busy. Like there's some things, some, some limitations to that. Um, but I found with a certain lens and a certain camera and a certain light and a certain technique, I created this style of taking botanical portraiture that I think is unique to me. And I, I stuck with that um, ever since I discovered it, maybe a year ago, I, I discovered this kind of lighting style. And I would go out at night so that I could light a flower and really isolate it from everything. It's sort of the way, like if you, if you saw like a still life, uh, from one of the Dutch masters, and the background would be almost black, not quite, but very, very dark with a, with a slanted light and a focus on the subject, that kind of thing. You can find an angle where it's like the light is maybe, you know, 45 degrees from the camera or something, and that angle is kind of what it's all about. That, that really starts to get the contrast and the shadows. And so if you have a flash on your camera right now, you've seen that, and it's real punky. It's kind of flat, and it's you're in the Rolling Stone and you just walked out of the club and somebody snapped you, you know, it's not that kind of a look. But once you start moving the, the light away from the camera, then you start getting interesting details uh, that you don't otherwise get with flashes. So tell me, who do you work with? I mean, you're, you're, you're touring on your own, generally speaking, you were saying, or at least in well, the early days. Nine months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, well, maybe, um, 2000, uh, I don't know, 2009, maybe I started working with these guys. Uh, Johnny Wakin and Paul Ford. Uh, Paul was a bass player and was just a kind of a beginning cellist, but we actually decided as to like, you know what, just leave your bass at home and play the cello. And when you want to play a bass line, just figure out how to play it on the cello. And that's going to be cool and unique. And it'll give us a different kind of sound. Um, and then Johnny is this really great electric guitar player. He plays mandolin, harp, he plays the musical saw. He, he can play anything he gets his hands on. Um, he's not an educated musician, but he is one of the most incredible intuitive musicians I've ever worked with. Um, he often doesn't know the words of the song. Sometimes he doesn't know what key the song is in. Um, but you, you watch him play and you're like, I, I almost can't believe that, um, that he's working with so little knowledge and so much intuition. Um, so he's a real magician. And, and it took him a little while to step out. He, would play, he played it very safe. For a couple of years and he would just he would every now and then he would kind of step out of his box a little bit and he'd look at me like is was that okay boss you know <laughs> but the more he did that the more i was like you know just come on just give it to us um and now he really will and we'll give him like a 10 minute guitar solo and he'll just he'll go sit on people's laps and <laughs> drink people's beer and whatever he'll just like mess with people and then just rip into some amazing music where you, you just you can't whatever he's done you can't get angry with him because he's amazing and he's really, you know, he's changing your life. So with those two guys, I started working with them when I came home. They were my local guys. And I would still go, like, I, I recorded um, an album called Cacalac in Toronto, November 23rd, 2009. Uh, recorded with John Showman, Brian Kobayakawa, Tressa Leveser, Chris Quinn, all these uh, Toronto people. And Andrew Collins played the mandolin. 
uh, Ken Whiteley recorded and also played it, played a dobro and did some singing on it. And we recorded it in this kind of converted garage, all in a circle. They're all in the same space. We broke all the rules of modern recording, but we were able to record it in six hours. Um, and so I would do albums like that. I would kind of think, well, there's this group of musicians there, and there's this group of songs that I have that would kind of work with those musicians. And I would go and make an album with them. And then I would come home and I would play with my guys here at home and they would do their interpretation of it. Well, then they started to tour with me a little bit and they became my band and we started calling ourselves Jonathan Bird and the Pickup Cowboys. That's who they were. Uh, well, unfortunately, Paul um, was diagnosed with brain cancer. So that, that album or the EP that you listened to last night was from those recordings. So the last day of recording that album um, and what later became that EP he was diagnosed with brain cancer and he lived for about a year. Um, the glioblastoma is just, just, you know, it's not just kind of how long do you have? You have six months, you have a year maybe. So that was really hard. And Johnny and Paul were best friends and Johnny stayed home and I went out solo again. And then after that, I thought we just, I, I was always kind of envious of people like my friend Corin Raymond, who has this residency at the Cameron house every Thursday night, happy hour. He would play every week with his band. And he had been doing it, I don't know, 11 years or something. And what a cool community and scene he had built up just by showing up every week, you know. So uh, there was this little bar called The Kraken, two miles from my house here in the country that I had never been into. Once when I was a teenager, I went in there and there were like two guys in there smoking five cigarettes. It was just <laughs> terrible. But since then, they kind of built up a little music scene. And the stage, for such a small room, it's actually a pretty big stage. And I could tell that they, they kind of prioritized having music there. So I said, you know, it looks like there's nothing going on a Wednesday night. What, what if we played every Wednesday for a while? How would that be? And he said, well, let's try it out. We come here at 7, seven to 10. I was like, oh, three hours. Okay, well, maybe we can do that. Never played three-hour gigs, but uh, sure. And uh, we, uh, we got a friend of ours, Austin McCall, to play the drums with us. It was me on acoustic guitar, Johnny mostly on electric, and a drummer. We didn't have a bass player. And people just started showing up, like, right away. It just the house would be packed every week. And we couldn't believe it. And three, four months in, we're like, okay, surely now people are tired of it. They're going to stop showing up. But no, we'd have, like, 200 people show up in the fire code 65. Like, half of the people are out in the parking <laughs> lot just there for the scene. So that was fantastic. And, and it, it became very important for us to be home and it became important for us to have our own recordings and it became important for us to have a t-shirt with Austin on it, you know, and to, and to become that. So that I've finally grown into that where I have my band now I've got my heartbreakers, you know, I've got, I've got my guys that I work with. I have an octave pedal for my guitar. I actually play the bass sometimes. So we'll do the kind of power trio thing. So we never got a bass player. We never got a keyboard player. It's still a trio. And now with COVID, we're still live streaming from the same venue and we don't want to bring anybody else in really. So we, we have special guests every week. And now what we do is we just have them re record their videos um, and they send two songs in on the video and we pay them for it. And we air that during our live stream. How's that working? Are people tuning in? Oh yeah. People are tuning in. I mean, that's how we've been making a living for nine months now. And we've just now we've hit kind of, screen fatigue in the past month where you know three hours a week is a lot it's a, if you're going to the venue you get a beer you hang out you're talking to people it's a different thing but just sitting there with a screen for three hours is a lot so now we've gone to every other week we do the big three-hour show at the kraken every other week we do an hour show 
an hour more or less, usually a little bit more, uh, just from my studio in my house where, where I'm doing this interview from right now. And Johnny will come in. We'll just play it as a duo, and I'll do a more stripped-down songwriter thing. So my, my old-time fans, fans from 15 years ago, they love that because they saw me that way. They really fell in love with my music that way, and they love that they're able to have that. Now we know who you're working with on the stage. Who are you working with behind the scenes? Do you have management? Do you have an agent? I mean, how is this? Who, who's helping you out? We have a great agent, and he's just, he's so patient right now. He's been doing nothing but canceling and rebooking, you know, just hoping something comes through. And people are starting to get creative. So there's, there's stuff that's starting to happen, you know. But Michael Kelly is his name. He lives in Texas. He works with a, a really big agency called Dynamic Artists. It's the first big agency we've ever worked with. He saw us at Americana Fest the last, uh, in 2018, and just came up to us at the end of our show. As, the, as all the bouncers were trying to hustle everybody out because we played last, he was like, no, I'm with the band. And he said, that's just one of the best shows I've ever seen. I have to work with you guys. And I, I never, I didn't think that kind of thing ever happened in the music business. Yeah, it seems like a movie. Uh, yeah, like, you know, a big agency would walk up to you and just be like, you guys are great, we're hiring you. But, but he did, and, and it's been really great. And he's, very, he's being very patient right now with you know, how things are. Um, and people are starting to get creative. We have, uh, we have three shows in February, three, three shows over three nights in the same venue. So they're only going to have 30 people in the venue at a time all distanced and masked and everything. So we'll play three nights so they can have everybody who wants to see us can see us and we'll make just enough money to kind of make it work out for the nights. And people start to get creative. Bobby Hayes, uh, Barbara is her name, but we call, we call her Bobby. Bobby Hayes is my personal assistant. She's been my personal assistant for going on eight years now. And she just invited the band over for dinner one night and she made this fantastic dinner. And I could just tell that she kind of had her thing together. There was just something about her and the way her apartment was decorated and the way she had organized things. And I knew she was kind of semi-retired. She did some work, like she would go to the USO once a week and, and work with those guys. And had I, she ever worked with musicians before? I, no, I don't think so. I just, I just said, are you looking for a little extra income? Because I think I've got some work for you. There's, just, there's always something. That I, that I think, I wish I could just tell somebody to do this because I, I really feel like my energy is spent best doing this other thing. And he's that person for me now. And, and she's got her limits, just like anybody. But if I was on the road, you know, it's just hard to do anything on the road. Like, the, you know, you're on stage for maybe two hours, you know, three hours for the Kraken, but that is not even half of what you do on the road you got to find the restaurant and find the hotel and you got to fly you got to drive there you got to whatever all the things that you have to do on the road it's like a 24 7 job so to be able to call her and say can you call our agent and tell him about the thing can you call this radio station in dallas and tell them we're coming and we're 30 minutes behind or whatever whatever we needed and, and she does those kind of things i have um people who do graphic design for me I have people who do web stuff for me sometimes when I need a, a little part on my website fixed or they update, the, you know, Squarespace does the big update. I'm like, oh my God, I just, <laughs> just no, I'm not even going to get into this. I'm going to call half person. my crap go. Yeah. Yeah. I can pay this person $200 and like, you know, it would take me a week to do it. So how are, how are you guys selling stuff? I mean, you've got, are, are you, your stuff's on Bandcamp. Yeah. Is, is it mostly downloads? Is it? You know, are you selling actual discs or? 
We, we sell some downloads on Bandcamp. Um, we sell some discs. Now that we're not playing live, it's really hard. We did one live show about a month ago, and it was amazing. It was like, oh, right, this is what it used to be like. It's like you take a break and you make $500 at the table. People want to buy stuff. And they're, the thing is they're there and they have a memory. They have a living memory of going there and the cool people they hung out with and discovering the band and dancing with their friend. And so when they make a purchase, they're really like they're buying a little piece of that memory to take home with them. And so when people watch online or when they discover you on YouTube or whatever, it's not the same. It doesn't fire the same kind of uh, commerce. And I love when people buy CDs because they the sound quality people, I'm telling you, <laughs> we have gotten used to MP3s and AACs and streaming on YouTube and all that stuff is great. Zoom podcast, yeah. I love podcasts. I love Spotify. I love YouTube. I partake in all that stuff. But man, when you put a real CD on with some real speakers or some headphones, you go, wow, we've been missing a lot. We really have. Which is funny to hear you say that because I remember when everything moved analog to digital and everybody was saying that as well. We're losing so much going right. from analog to digital and now from disc to compressed yeah. files. And yeah, I mean, you know, the more it's compressed, the less that's there. It's really simple. I mean, it's, yeah. it, you're definitely losing stuff. It's just how much of the important stuff. Even a high quality MP3, you are listening to literally 10% of the song that was there when it recorded in its full digital file. And I know people are really excited about vinyl still and, and you know, and even cassette tapes had a color. They have a certain sound. They're not necessarily better, but they have a certain color that's cool. Um, but if you ask really great engineers, like I just read a great interview with Bob Clearmountain. He was like, man, I always hated it when like, I would hear what was coming out of the speakers live. And then I would listen back to the tape. And even what was coming off of the tape immediately was like a little bit less than what I heard. And then by the time we got the record, I was like, oh, there's got a better way. <laughs> And he, you know, he just loves digital because of the fidelity. And it really, it does have that. But there's that cool, there's that a piece of diamond on a piece of plastic. There's like some kind of quantum paradox in that when you're spinning a piece of vinyl, there's like, there's some kind of magic that's happening, some kind of atomic magic that happens. You can actually watch the machine working. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty magical back in the day for sure. Yeah, it's, it's one of the reasons. I love printing my photos on canvas. And really, you know, if you say, is that fidelity? Is that an accurate representation? It's probably not. I mean, you're introducing a, a physical texture into it and it has its own kind of bugs um, as far as that goes. But there's something about the feel of it and that painterly quality and the luxury of a really great piece of canvas that is exciting. A lot of photographers would say that you haven't really taken the picture until you've printed it mm. because mm. The, there's that final portion of it. I mean, yes, a lot of people are doing post work on it and they're, they're playing with it in Lightroom or in Photoshop or whatnot, but really it's not until it's actually married with a, a surface right. that you really actually see it come to life. And especially because not all photos were meant to be seen in, on a phone on a small screen Absolutely. and backlit and, uh, Absolutely. you know, through ones and zeros. A lot of them were meant to be married with an actual surface, with a, a canvas, with a, a paper, and that adds to it and that actually finishes it off. And then it becomes something real. I think one could make the same sort of thing about the same argument about you could listen to MP3 or you can go to the live show. Absolutely. And it's also, it's like, if you want to show people your pictures, 
print them out, do a showing somewhere, just get a coffee house, get some a friend's house, wherever, have people come and look at your pictures, you know, print them 16 by 20, whatever, like give them a nice size so people can really look at them. And it's a whole different experience. Yeah. Same sort of thing with, as you said earlier, it's about, it, it's like putting the words on a page, all of a sudden they, they get weight. They have yeah. substance. Right. Otherwise they're fleeting thoughts and they will just That's drift right. off into nowhere. Roby, I just, I printed, I just did this because I wanted to, nobody bought this. I knew it would cost, you know, four or $500 to print this thing, but I really wanted to print a really big print. And I used this camera that's like a 50 megapixel sensor. It's really high resolution. And I knew I could print this big file and it would look great. So I finally picked one, I saved my money and I printed this four by five foot print of a poppy. Um, and it's kind of like the other pictures you were looking at where the flower is really the focus and there's this kind of, uh, you know, everything else kind of fades into darkness and there's this focus on it, but it's, it's been raining a little bit and there's like little water droplets on the poppy. And it is a piece of magic, man. It just blew my mind to see it. And the closest I could get to it, it's all the detail was still there. It was really like a magic trick. Like the, I can see the reflection of my light in each little water droplet. And it's just so much fun to have done that and to have, I don't know, kind of blown up, blown my money on it, but, <laughs> but it's beautiful. I, I, I got my girlfriend to pick a picture. I'm like, I want to, I want you to give you a picture and I want to print this really big thing, like find a space and pick one. And she did. And so it's in her bathroom now and it's beautiful. You said you're doing really well selling your photos and you're doing well in terms of the pivot to live shows, live streaming and things like that. How else are you marketing yourself? How are you letting people know whether it's about shows or about uh, new recordings, new artworks available? Well, when I, when I started taking pictures, I, I really, it's really just for me. And I, I would share them, you know, on, on Facebook or whatever. Well, I took, you know, whatever I took this picture, it's interesting to me. I'll share it on my personal account. But when I started creating things that I thought were beautiful or interesting, I realized I needed just to separate my music and my photography a little bit. It's not like I didn't want anybody to know. I just wanted there to be separate channels. So then I started a separate Instagram account at Magic Flower Cowboy is my Instagram account just for my photography. And I finally just started my own Facebook page for Magic Flower Cowboy. But for a while, I would just, I kind of had my Instagram Magic Flower Cowboy account so that it would link to my personal Facebook profile. So, and I, I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of people who are like friends of friends and people who know me as a musician or whatever. So I have like 4,000 connections maybe on my Facebook profile. So more than most people. <clears throat> but I didn't really think about it that way. But when I started posting my pictures from at Magic Flower Cowboy, I, I had a really big audience on my Facebook profile that I didn't really think about before I did that. Um, but when people started reacting to them and asking if they could purchase them, did I make prints? Somebody, the first time somebody asked me that, that I, I said, uh, yes. And, <laughs> okay. Now I got to figure out how to do that. <laughs> could, could you sell me one of these? Yes, I can. Let me figure it out. I'll get right back to you. And so I found this printer who's local. His name is Wojtek Wodinski and he is a retired GE engineer. He's this really smart guy and he, it, it was, his job was killing him. He was having heart problems and his wife said, you have to quit. So then he needed something <clears throat> just as tweaky to do after he quit his job as an engineer. So he built a boutique photo printing lab in his basement. 
and he prints this incredible quality. Like every canvas, it, they're archival, they're all cotton, they're acid-free. He varnishes them so that they're essentially waterproof. He actually took one. He's like, I want to show you, like, how resilient are these? Like, I was asking him, you know, could you put this in your bathroom or whatever? And he walked outside and he threw the canvas in his pool. He pulled it out and dried it off. He's like, this is how resilient they are. They'll last for 100 years easy. And he just does such beautiful work. And even, even the editing, like, he will take it into his own Photoshop on his really great monitor. And he will suggest things, like the shadows can be a little brighter or whatever. He'll make sure that, you know, if you're going to print it larger, one thing that happens is the larger it is, the brighter colors tend to come out just from changing the size of the print. So he'll, he'll adjust some things depending on the size of the print. He just knows things that I don't know because he's been doing it for a long time. Uh, but it's so great to work with him. And it really feels like a partnership. Like the, the final piece feels like we kind of co-created it. So I was fortunate enough to run into him and then to be able to just produce a really quality product that I could stand behind. So I started printing canvases first. That was the first thing I liked. And then we found this paper that I really liked. So we started doing that too. And again, just people would see my pictures on my Facebook profile and say, wow, that's great. I'd love to hang that up in my kitchen. I'm like, okay, well, what size is the wall? You know, let's work it out. And, and that kind of turned into more of a business. So I, now I've got a web page. I'm just getting a storefront set up and I'm trying to catch up with demand really. Like I, I've got more demand than I, than I thought I would have. And it's, and it's been really great. I'm trying to respond to that. Has there been any missteps along the way that you've got, whether with music or with photo, like anything you sort of, you go, boy, I, I thought that was going to be the right, right route for me. And then no, it, it, it turned out poorly or it turned out you had to backtrack and go another direction. Yeah, I think uh, people that I've worked with from time to time uh, that I didn't really, I didn't really vet them the way I should have. And I had a couple of bad experiences that taught me to do that. And in the music business, actually, probably in most businesses, you're always working, you know, six months ahead of yourself. So if you dump your agent and you start over again, you're not going to be working for another six months. And you have to figure out how to get by during that time. So it's a pretty big hit when you, when you have to switch horses like that. And we had a manager for a while that really didn't work for us. We had a, a couple of agents that really didn't work for us. And those were it, really because I just didn't, I didn't do the research that I should have done. There were people who could have told me. There were people who I knew, who I knew very well, who could have told me. But I just, I didn't ask. I didn't go looking for that information before I... I jumped in and maybe some of that was, you know, my own kind of imposter syndrome, like, oh, they like me. They're willing to work with me. I should work with them. No, you know, take your time, get, you know, pick the right person, do your due diligence, you know, and, that, and I learned that and I've made, I've made many artistic mistakes or things that I feel like are mistakes, maybe things I've done that people feel like uh, were mistakes. I think in social media, it took me a little while to get the feel of that about what to talk about, what I wanted my social media presence to be about. And now I realize that I don't really want to talk about politics so much. I don't really want to talk about social issues so much. I want to create art around that. I want to make my statement in the context of my art. Other than that, I want to be welcoming to everyone. If you're not a complete asshole harassing people on my page, <laughs> then, then I'm cool with you. And I want to make art for you. And I want to engage you. I want you to be able to discover me without saying, oh, you know, I, 
I liked this guy until he said that thing, until he liked this person. I don't feel like those, those things feel like they're very personal to me. I share those things with my friends. I don't need to share those things in public. So it took me a little while to dial my social media presence in that way to say, you know, a lot of people are talking about this, but I'm not going to talk about this. You know, somebody was really inspiring to me in that way was Steve Martin. So Steve Martin wrote an incredible autobiography and the audiobook is him reading his own autobiography. It's incredible. And one of the things he said, which he has said before and since, is that when he came of age as a, as a comedian, when he really hit his stride and determined his path, everybody was wearing crazy colors and bell bottoms. And there was a lot of political stuff and people had facial hair. He shaved his face. He put on a suit. He didn't talk about any of that stuff. He just went totally absurd. He went in the <laughs> absolute opposite direction. And that defined him and it defined his, the rest of his career. And I thought, yeah, that's so cool. And I, I feel like I'm that kind of contrary person. I want to do that too. I want to stand out. I don't want to be in the crowd. I don't even want to be king of the crowd. I want to be that cool guy over there who's doing something totally different that's interesting to all the nerds. That's who <laughs> I want to be. So how can I do that? How can I be a little different from everybody else? How can I be, how can I be more myself even? Um, and so reading his, his autobiography kind of helped me frame that for myself. What kind of advice might you give to somebody who wants to get into music or for that matter, transition into photography after a successful music career is already in place? Yeah. Um, I would say, is there anything else you can do? <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you're good at? Spoken like um, a true artist. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm just. It's really, you know, people say it's a tough business, but the, the business is tough. It doesn't matter what business you're in. Business is tough. If you want to be a plumber or, a, you know, start your own bank or whatever, it's, you know, it's tough. It takes, um, it takes resolution. It takes a certain amount of, of, it takes goal setting. One of the most important things I learned as a business person, and I'm not really a great business person, but I, I do have, you know, the 80-20 rule, like 20% of what you do gets 80% of your results. So I'm always looking for that thing that I do well. And one of the things that worked for me early on that I go back to over and over again is, where do I want to be in 10 years? So that's just a dream. I have no idea. In 10 years, there could be three more pandemics. So don't mean whatever. Who, who knows what could happen? But this is my dream. In 10 years, I want to make a record with Peter Gabriel. I don't know. Whatever your dream is. I want to build a candy store. Well, what does that mean? Where do, where I want to build a candy store with Peter Gabriel. That. There's my okay, 10 years. Right now. <laughs> right now. So, you know, where do you need to be in five years? In five years, if you want to be there in five years, where do you need to be? Okay, let's back that up. So in two years, where do you need to be to be there in five years? And you just keep working that back until you know what you need to do tomorrow. And I think that's important. I think it's important to keep the big picture dream in your, in your mind. That is the thing that will keep you from having regrets. That's the thing that will keep you from resenting your life. And then work that back to the very practical thing that you need to do tomorrow that may not make sense right now or may feel like, you know, drudgery or whatever. But you, need, you know that you need to do that because you know where you're going. You better yet, you know what you don't want to do. You know what to say no to. You know who you don't want to work with because it's not going in that direction. Jonathan, where can people find out more about you? 
Well, jonathanbird.com is always a great resource. I'm on Facebook. I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm on Twitter, although I don't mess with that very much. My favorite thing lately is YouTube. We've really been working on our YouTube channel. I love the format. I watch YouTube. I watch Mark Rober and periodic videos and nerdy stuff. I listen to music on YouTube. YouTube is actually the number one streaming music platform. It's bigger than they stream more music than Spotify or anybody. And, and I like using their service. So I just thought, you know, as a creator, I should just start creating for them. I should just start working in that format. And this, the lockdown has given me a great opportunity to do that. And I built this little studio in, I kind of have this upstairs room that's, that's got enough room for a bedroom and there's a little bathroom attached to it. I'm like, I can build a little studio here so I can just flip a couple switches and start making a video in five minutes. That's what I want. And so YouTube, uh, just slash Jonathan Bird Music, that's where my channel is. We live stream every Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We do a live show. Um, I put out videos. I make videos about like how I play a song, how I worked out how to play this thing on the guitar, what I'm doing with my camera. And I, I find that musicians follow musicians and musicians are also interested in imagery. How do I take good pictures of myself? How do I set up my live stream so that it doesn't look like I'm, you know, in my garage with a sheet hanging behind me? <laughs> um, so I try to share because I want everybody to do this. I think it's such, I think it's a fantastic time to be an artist. People think I'm crazy. People think I'm smoking dope and maybe I am, but this is a great time to be an artist. We have access to things that people have never had access to. I mean, there was a time where if Linda Ronstadt and Santana were making a record at the same time, you couldn't get your record pressed. You were on standby. You couldn't call Oasis. Like when I started, you couldn't just send somebody an MP3 via email. You had to make a physical thing and send it to them through the post office. And now you can build your email list build your website, get a YouTube channel or Instagram or whichever your favorite way is to connect to your fans. And you can sell something today. You can affect people's lives right now in the next five minutes. You can go live and play a song and people can enjoy that song. And you can build that relationship directly with no record label, with no publisher, with no newspaper critics that you have to go through. None of that. I think it's a fantastic time to be an artist pandemic be damned all those things people complain about spotify i think it's one of the best things that ever happened to us like all the people who come okay if you're don henley you can complain all right <laughs> if you're stevie nicks it has negatively affected your income i agree if you're me or thousands of other people like me it has not affected your income you're still making the no money that you made before on royalties but people can listen to your music very easily on any device they have anywhere they are and i love it and i I'd say just put yourself out there just do it you want to start your patreon you want to have your exclusive place where people pay for your stuff that's great again 80 20 rule a certain percentage of people will go do that but you have to get out there on the main street and say here is my art here is my song thank you so much for being on the show and sharing with us how you make a living you're welcome roby thanks for having me Subscribe to Making a Living Show on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on the show, visit makingalivingshow.com and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Making a Living Show is produced by Next Exit Media and hosted by me, Roby Levy. Thanks for listening.